Hello, welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Hal Whitman. And we are editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. Aims up Americans think a little more clearly about our public life, rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. This published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today we're very excited to be joined by Brian McGraw. Brian is an Associate Professor of Politics and Dean of Social Sciences at Wheaton College. His main areas of research are in contemporary political thought and especially how those traditions intersect with religious belief and practice. For our winter 2024 issue, Brian co-wrote an essay with Timothy Taylor about the challenges inherent to voting in a representative democracy. Voters must decide whether to choose candidates based on strategic or moral considerations, and they often don't like the options from either major party. They write that we could benefit from a new framework for thinking about voting, and not just for elections in which we find ourselves especially bewildered. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Brian, so, you know, you begin your essay with Timothy talking about how in the last few election cycles in particular, particularly at the presidential level, but also levels below that, voters have discovered that voting is not simple, particularly when the two options you have are not that appealing. And, you know, you guys write that voting is, is one of these civic responsibilities that requires real moral and political work. It's not something that we should think of as being easy or a simple choice. I'm going to use a, a quote from here from, from y'all. You say that in choosing who should represent exercise political authority over the public, voters must make any number of complex, ambiguous, morally fraught judgments that genuinely matter, even if they are usually immaterial in terms of wielding real political power. So to start here, talk with us more about some of these challenges that are inherent to voting and the type of democracy we live under. So it's funny because, of course, voting is the it's the most obvious way way in which you know a small kid in elementary school your you maybe your school used to have like my schools used to have mock elections. I think I even did sort of mock debates in fourth grade with the, the presidential election and and everything. And and it always sort of seems like pretty straightforward, right? Well, you find the person you like and you vote for that person. Um, and then that person sort of holds these kind of offices and they do what you want them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, when we reflect on actually what happens when we, we think about voting, that that sort of – those sorts of relationships and that sort of ideal you know, shows up to be a lot more complicated. And mm-hmm. I think the last dozen or so years in the United States, this has become obvious to a lot more people. As, as you said, right, as people are sort of faced with the fact or faced with the sense that – you know, neither of the candidates or neither of the parties uh, seemed to represent them particularly well, that they were deeply dissatisfied with their choices. And and so in talking with friends and colleagues and family about voting, you're a political science professor, people ask you about that, like, how should sure. I think about that? It became kind of clear that the way that most people thought about it was like they used to think about it in second or third grade, right? That I just find the person I like and I vote for that person. And if I don't really like either one, then it becomes the kind of lesser of two evils. Right. But that seems like a weird way to uh, to, to act as citizens, it seems to us. It seems to us. And so we thought, well, let's maybe write something up on, on maybe kind of thinking a little bit, trying to get people to think a little bit more deeply about what they're actually doing, doing when they're voting. So – you write in the essay that Americans could benefit from a, quote, new framework for thinking about voting. 
And to begin developing right. that framework, you look at kind of the differences between these two approaches to voting, strategic versus sincere voting is what yeah. you call them. So how would you define these types of voting and what do you think are their strengths and drawbacks? So strategic voting is the way we think that sort of most people think about voting, right? Which is kind of what I, I just described, right? right? It's sort of, it's voting as a kind of exercise of power, right? I, I have this power as a citizen and I am sort of empowered to choose who it is that will represent me in Congress or state legislatures or city council, whatever it might be. Um, but the problem with that the problem with sort of thinking about voting is, you know, if we think about it just a little bit, it's pretty evident. First, it's a very, very small, teeny tiny bit of power, right? You're you you don't actually typically have all that much power. In fact, it's so tiny it's really insignificant. It's, it doesn't matter. We thought about titling the essay sort of what do you how to think about voting when your vote when your vote doesn't really matter. Uh, but that seems a little too provocative. And and none of none of my friends and family like it when I tell them their vote doesn't really matter. Sure, um, sure. And it doesn't really matter in a number of different ways. In some ways, right? Because uh, you know, if you're on the losing side, of course you didn't have anything to do with the person <laughs> winning the election. And what's more that even when you vote for someone and you think, oh yeah, that person should be in office and I'm helping put that person in office. Well, you know, politicians don't always tell the whole truth about what they're going to do. And sometimes, what? even when they do are telling the truth, <laughs> I know, shocking, it's shocking. shocking. <laughs> um, I, I, we, let, we let the secret out. Oh, no. <laughs> um, uh, and even sometimes when they do or are telling the truth of what they'd like to do, it turns out they can't actually do that, right? right. I mean, we, we see this all the time in, in presidential elections where the you know, president promised everything plus the unicorn. And it may not even be in their in their kind of their power to do X, Y, or Z, and and so if we think about ourselves as voting as an exercise of power, it can pretty quickly seem pretty futile, right? It, it can seem like it's really not even worth worth it. And indeed, you'll you know there are there are scholars and other other writers out there who will suggest that because your voting does the vote doesn't actually have that much of an impact. You're probably better using your time, I don't know, going get a cup of coffee or haircut or, or something else, right? I mean, you get more benefit out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't but, – but then it seems like being a citizen, that, that, that part of being a citizen is meaningless. And that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem kind of the, the way we want to think about being a citizen of liberal democracy. And so we offer up a different model what, uh, you know, what, what we sort of – this, this idea of voting as a kind of an expression of one's sort of uh, integrity, right? Um, what, what do we call sort of sincere voting? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, is, this just comes out of the kind of the, the pretty commonsensical observation that most people would rather live lives of integrity where their parts of their lives kind of fit together in some way, where they're, they, they, have, they can sort of – they have some sort of meaning to their lives and they can tell you a story about it. This is who I am. This is what I do. And this is how all things fit together. Now, of course, you know, none of us quite fit together. And things oftentimes are, we're oftentimes at odds with, with ourselves. Mm. But all things being equal, we would, we would prefer that. And so we suggest in the, in, the, uh, in the article that we could see voting within that context, right? And, and voting in the sense of expressing a view about how it is our political community ought to be organized, right? Because at the end of the day, when we're voting for someone or we're voting for a party or we're voting for a slate of candidates, 
we're hoping that those people will enact policies or pursue ends that are sort of at least in one way, shape, or form congruent with with how we how we would like our country to look, right? Or how we'd like our county to look, or our city, or our state. Um, and, and so we suggest that you know if we think about voting as a sort of a, a means of expressing that sensibility, that idea of what it is we want our community to look like, then we aren't we aren't so much about sort of exercising power, although you know you can a little bit, a little teeny tiny bit of that, <laughs> but rather kind of giving voice to those ideas, right? It's sort of saying what it is that I, in all sincerity, think the community ought to look like. Um, and, you know, that that seems like a much more defensible, a much more sort of understandable, in, in some sense, a much more rational way to think about voting. Now, of course, that doesn't get away from the complexity, because in some ways, the, the strategic voting is, is, is easier. You just want to say, well, I'm going to put that guy or that woman in, in office. In sincere voting, you have to make sort of judgments about what it is you really think the community ought to look like, and then how do you make your choices among the various options you have, among whom it's unlikely you'll find someone who actually reflects that, right? And so you've got to kind of do, do some judging about um, trade-offs or things you're willing to kind of live with. And um, and so there we, we, we make a distinction between what we call sort of constitutional and sort of policy issues, right? And there you're just trying to make a distinction about, well, how important are the issues or the, or the, sort of the, the things that I'm sort of really interested in? How important are they in these kind of voting? So to give an example, if a candidate or a party has a somewhat different view, of, view than yours of the marginal tax rates, probably something you can live with voting for, even if because something else is really important. But if someone is a, let's say, a, in favor of reinstituting racial segregation, you probably are thinking so far out of the bounds, I, I can't, I can't abide right, them, of regardless of whatever else might be on there. Mm-hmm. So that that but that's a, but that's that's a really set of that's a set of pretty complex kind of judgments that makes, in some sense, voting even more difficult. Than sometimes imagine it to be. So if I can follow up on that, Brian, I was compelled by what you wrote about the dangers of purely utilitarian voting. And I think especially the way that if you vote in a very strategic way, you can maybe end up kind of rationalizing a lot of things about the stance of the candidate that you voted for after the fact. At the same time, if voting is instead to be this kind of expression of integrity, as you say, or a, a sort of morally mm-hmm. expressive act. Do you think there's any danger in the opposite direction that voters could drift into a sort of opposite error of being naive? And in the sense that I'm sure a mm. lot of people, if they viewed their vote as an expression of their aspirations for what our kind of moral political order should look like, wouldn't necessarily ever yeah. feel good about voting for anyone, which doesn't <laughs> seem healthy. So how can we avoid overcorrecting in that way and, and be eth- think ethically about voting without being kind of above it all, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess you could imagine legions of sort of grim-faced 
moral philosophers marching to the polls <laughs> and kind of giving their sort of Eberian realism to the to the test. Maybe that's not such a good idea. They might they might just decide to just sort of opt out altogether. <laughs> they, they, just, they just go and they just um, leave. They don't actually go in the voting booth. <laughs> it's like they go and they turn in their empty, their blank. Right. I mean the that sure that's a danger. I mean, so one way might you might think about it is that if we encourage people to be too morally idealistic, they are bound to find themselves deeply disappointed by whatever happens with the election, right? Because um, no matter how good a person um, uh, or group of people might hold office, they are flawed human beings who never really make mistakes, have bad judgment. And, and so find themselves in difficult positions themselves. And I can imagine a kind of a, a disappointed idealist who then just sort of throws up, throws up her hands and says, well, you know what? I'm just going to vote my interest. Whatever, whatever is good for me. That's, that's all I'll do. It is, there is a kind of a, there's a kind of tightrope to walk there, right? Where, where we sort of have these kind of ideals and we understand sort of where we would love, like things to go and to recognize that sometimes, given the choices ahead of us, in front of us, we have to take half a loaf, right? And we, we have to kind of like try to move the ball forward, but recognize that we're not going to kind of to, uh, I'm not going to continue to mix my metaphors, but to sort of continue to advance to, towards what we think is, is better rather than worse. Or maybe sometimes we have to do things to stave off what we see as disasters, right? And it, it requires a degree of moral realism recognizing that we just live in a imperfect kind of world and that's our fate. And so, but, but part of it, part of what we also wanted to do out of integrity was to sort of take a little bit of the weight off of people's shoulders, right? Where mm. um, the way if we think about sort of voting as an exercise of power, there's a sense in which people sort of are told, you know, this all depends upon you. Um, you know, and we've had this, you've seen this, I mean, I think, you know, I'm 52, and it feels like every presidential election I've ever sort of been around for has been the most important presidential election of our lives, every right? Time, every and time. It's happening. Every time. Every time, right? And, and every time there's something to that, right? It's not crazy. But to have that kind of thrown on everybody's shoulders all the time is exhausting, yeah. um, especially when it's not, it's not really – true it's not on each one of us as, as it were and so we were trying to sort of just take some of that burden off of people um but it still requires people to have a, a degree of moral realism and, and recognize you know we can we can make things better we can improve or we can sort of prevent things from getting worse but there aren't any home runs here your your candidate is not going to just clean up everything it just it's just not that's not the way the world works but that's a again that requires a degree of maturity that you know it's not always in evidence <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i do think that that's helpful brian of a way to think about it of, of that moral realism and i know you mentioned that in the essay you kind of focus more on the philosophical aspects whereas your, your co-author talked more about institutions but i just want to did wanted to ask you just one right. thing briefly about institutional design I know there's a section in your sure. essay where you talk a lot about ranked choice voting. That has a real promise yeah. to, to moderate electoral outcomes. You mentioned that it gives candidates, quote, an incentive to pursue coalition building across their field of competitors. Yeah. just want to ask you briefly about why do you think that ranked choice voting does show a promise of 
helping voters not just find more moderate candidates, but also register more of their preferences and have that more expressed in the democratic process? Well, I mean, it helps just in the sense that it allows people to make, I guess, more more precise expression, more precise expressions of their preferences, right? So you can rank these candidates, and you instead of just sort of saying, you know, it's not so one or zero, like I take this person over over that other person, but you can kind of you can you rank them, so it gets a little more a little more nuanced. It actually demands a little more of, of voters because they have to sort of think about like where do they want to put people on these lists, which may be a problem as well. I mean, I, I mean that, that's that's worth noting is it it does require more of voters, particularly if you think about sort of making a transition from our first past the post system into something like that, then it would, it would require a kind of a new, a new sort of mindset. But it also, it also gives voters, I think more of a space within which to sort of say, I really don't like someone or I really don't like them or, or whatnot. I really think that they are particularly dangerous. So it gets to that other side of what I, I mentioned a minute ago, right? Where it's, you know, we can we can move things forward a bit. We can make things sort of better towards kind of what I see as a, a vision of a, you know, a good society. But it can also do things to try to stave off what I think are kind of the worst elements of that. And I think in our particular moment, which is probably one of the reasons why we're we're thinking about this, mm. is that we find ourselves in a moment where the edges of our our political communities seem to have more of a hold on our political imaginations, on, on setting political agendas, on kind of policy choices out of proportion to their actual vote share, out of proportion to kind of how many people actually find those views persuasive. Mm. And so this is really a way of maybe tweaking the American system to do what I think it's meant to do in a way, which is marginalize the folks on the edge, right? Sort of not let them pull the republic apart um, and and sort of force others into compromise, negotiation, coalitions that where you get successful democracies, you get the second best, and you you learn to be okay with it. <laughs> yeah, I, I liked how the point y'all made in the essay about how maybe ranked choice voting incentivizes competing candidates to court each other's voters in a way that right. maybe isn't incentivized at the moment to, you know, in a, in a sense of like, oh, I want these people to put me as their number two. Whereas now, mm-hmm. you know, in a primary like we're seeing unfold in the GOP, there might be a reasonable, right. if cynical, writing off of the people in the rival candidates camp. So I appreciated that. Point. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, you're, yeah, you in the GOP, ahead. say that, you know, in the, in the primaries, you have a very small number of people who have, you know, so far as I can tell, it pretty much determined who the nominee is. I mean, that's that's a, and and they're not particularly representative of, I think, the party as a whole, nor of certainly not the country. So I think that's a, it's just an indicator that we are, what for any number of different reasons, we've kind of outsourced our candidate selection to a very small number of folks, and it'd be better if we had ways of giving voters a wider a wider set of choices, seems to me. Yeah, well said. So returning just again to this idea of voting as an individual act, a moral choice by a single yeah. voter, how might we think also about voting as a communal act by which voters right. are members of a nation seeking the common good together? And yeah. if you look at 
you, you talk rightly about how an individual voter doesn't decide an election. And that's a really well-made point about taking the pressure of the entire election off of the individual. But at the same time, of course, the sum of individual votes does decide the election. Sure. And so it got me, th- your essay got me thinking about just how, how there are a lot of actions we may feel obligated to do in the knowledge that we play a mm-hmm. small part, but a real part in a collective effort mm-hmm. that matters more than symbolically. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, th- I thought of recycling, for instance, <laughs> as, as something that the individual recycler doesn't make much of an impact, but a lot of people recycling does. So do you think there's any danger in your approach of kind of losing sight of the fact that individual choices don't just shape the individual's soul, but have consequences for the polity as a whole, if that makes any sense? Well, sure. I think this is actually, a, in a way, a kind of a, a danger that has um, sort of arisen in our, you know, over the past 30 or 40 years in just the means of voting, right? Think about sort of the, the, the change in voting where my earliest, my earliest political memory is being in kindergarten and seeing my parents walk through my school as they're on their way to vote in the 1976 uh, presidential election, just to show how old I am. Um, and, uh, and, of course, everybody in 1976 went and voted on a particular day, and they went to sort of their local area community center, and they voted, and you saw your neighbors, you saw your friends, you saw your enemies, right? you saw all those people. And now, of course, people vote by mail. They vote some places. Maybe there's some online voting. There's, you know, there's multiple days, sometimes multiple weeks of early voting, um, which I think actually creates more a sense of this is me. And, and indeed, there's a sense of like, well, I'm going to vote what's good for me. Like, this is like I have to vote out of my interest. And, of course, you know, that's the way people are just going to think, I think, in general. But there's, this, there's that sense of like what's, what's one of the things that sort of it's it's important to recognize when we're articulating like this, this, this sincere voting uh, thing is that we frame it in the, in the sense of like that people ought to vote about how they, what they see the community ought to look like, right? It's mm-hmm. a, it's a vision of kind of the common good, right? This is, this is what I think yeah. they, this is like my sense of like, what's the best sense of how we ought to be organized. And there's a very important we there, right? That, that we're members of this broader community, and we think that it would be better for that community to be organized in a particular way. So I would, I'd actually sort of suggest that it's like the way we're sort of trying to reframe voting really does kind of get a get better at that at that kind of that funny paradox of voting, which, as you put it, uh, I vote as an individual, but whatever happens happens because of us as a corporate body, right. Or as us as part of a corporate body, mm. at least in, in sincere voting, we, we actually, we would encourage, we would hope that people would have in mind, Oh, this is what we would like the corporate body to look like. This is what we would like it to do. This is what, how we would like it to be structured and organized. And so maybe able to kind of better see ourselves as one particular individual voice with a view about how we all together ought to kind of be together. Yeah, I think that makes sense, Brian. So a final question for you, and you may have anticipated that we would ask yeah. you this, where this is kind of applying this practically and coming up with sure. a hypothetical here. So it's this November, voters walking into the voting booth. Yeah. Once again, for president, it's Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. They're probably thinking, not these two old guys again, like we got to choose one of these. So- <laughs> 
you know, this rerun of the 2020 election. So yeah. using using your evaluative framework, okay, we want we want sincere voting. We want voters to think about, as you just said, what is the best for the common good of America, how we want to live as a democratic community as a whole. What, what do they do? do if they don't yeah. like these candidates, do they not vote at all? Do they write somebody in? Do they vote for a minor party candidate that probably doesn't have much of a chance? H- how, do, how do you apply right. the framework you just talked about this conversation yeah. if you're a voter walking into that voting booth? So one thing we try to do is, again, like I said earlier, sort of this distinction between constitutional and kind of policy differences, right? So everybody, you should have this kind of like very basic sense of like what does it make, what does a good, just constitutional order look like? So the first thing to ask yourself is, does does one of these candidates have which have commitments and promises that you think would that it fits within that kind of constitutional order? Right? Is it are they, you know, are they sort of broadly within kind of what I what I think about is going to be a decent constitutional order, or are they outside? Do they think things that are are contrary to my best sense of kind of those fundamental moral and political commitments? And if a candidate is outside of that, then I think that you do one of those things, right? You simply abstain, you write someone in. I mean, I, I think sort of the best choices is probably uh, abstain or, or sort of, or vote for if there's like another kind of third or fourth or fifth party candidate that you think will fit there yeah. uh, to, to register that. And, and the reason I say that is because um, if you think about parties as kind of these competitive, well, I mean, they're supposed to be these competitive organizations trying to win votes, although these two parties seem to be dedicated to losing in some weird way. I mean, I don't know. That's what seems to me. Then at least there's that register of, wow, there were this many ballots and, you know, such and such number were blank or voted for this other Mm. third party. I mean, think about the kind of the, the, and, and with that hope to move people move those parties in a better direction. Think about all the people who voted for Ross Perot in you know, 19, the 1992 election, right. where Perot's main sort of main issue was the deficit. That had an effect. I mean, we were no longer running budget deficits by the end of the decade. That was sort of a, an effective kind of third-party vote. Hmm. Now, you have the idea that we're a little on the hard side. But, <laughs> but then you sort of have to get to questions like, if, both, if you think both candidates, though, then are within that constitutional baseline, then you kind of have to kind of make judgments about sort of policy, places where you agree or disagree with them on policy. And then you're just going to have to make uh, a kind of judgments about what sort of trade-offs are you willing to accept, right? I mean, what things are really important to you? How do you prioritize them? How do you think that this election might affect things going forward? I mean, it gets pretty complex pretty quickly. Sure. And that's the kind of judgments you have to make. So my, you know, my recommendation is if, if a candidate, if both candidates are outside of what you think of as kind of a, a reasonably just constitutional order, like their views are just, you know, some, in some sense fundamentally unjust, um, leave that part of the ballot blank or write in a third party and keep your conscience clean. <laughs> yeah. Register your discontent. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, Brian, I think there's going to be a few folks that find themselves in that situation in November. Or we'll see. Things yeah. can always happen. But, but I think, yeah, I think it's helpful for you guys to, uh, to lay this out. So thanks so much for writing the piece for us and for joining us for the conversation. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you'd like to read Brian and Timothy's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. You can find more episodes of our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe and leave a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. 
Thanks for listening.